I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Brian Morescu. He's the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Brian, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. It's great to be here. I absolutely loved this book. It was absolutely fascinating. It was one of these almost unreal kind of archaeological treasure hunt into our hidden ancient history, and it has some really, truly earth-shaking revelations. Now, you you weren't doing the actual archaeological work, but you were having to travel the world to almost literally dig up the people who were doing all of this work. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I'm an attorney. I'm just a regular guy, uh, but I have a background in classics. I studied Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit at Brown University. And I probably should have gone on to a Ph.D. Or, or seminary. I wanted to be a priest at some point in my life. And I took a left turn into law school. And for the past 15 years, I've just been practicing law. But, you know, I never left the mysteries behind. I never left the ancient world behind. And so th- this, this idea of the best-kept secret in history, which is what the great religious scholar Houston Smith 
refer to um, in terms of the mysteries at Eleusis and potentially the, this this sacrament uh, that found its way into early Christianity. It just it really it really stuck with me. It's this it's this big controversial idea, uh, but something that uh, was there from the earliest days of my studies, and I just I couldn't I couldn't shake it. So uh, as the years went on. I started digging more and more into it, uh, not into the ground itself, but kind of reading through the old journals and reading through papers and trying to figure out who was working on this stuff and who was trying to use 21st century science to actually put all these old theories from the 60s and 70s to the test. And uh, exactly as you described it, in the end, it was more like digging up people, um, archaeobotanists and archaeochemists who look into this stuff, but for some reason their findings are either underreported or ignored. It's, it's really, really obscure stuff. Talk about the amazing places and things you got to see along the way and some of the key people who helped you. Sure, sure. Let, let, let me start by giving just the, the basic premise is that uh, what, what captured my attention was a book from 1978 written by the, this trio of renegades, R. Gordon Wasson, who was a J.P. Morgan banker turned ethnomycologist. Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, and Carl Ruck, who at the time was chair of the classics department at Boston University, and, he, and he's still there. He's, in fact, the only surviving member. He's now 85 years old. So I'd read that book in undergrad, and uh, what their basic thesis was is that the ancient Greeks were doing drugs to find God. And what they surmised was that it was an ergotized beer of sorts, because we do know that in the mysteries of Eleusis, which is essentially, it was the spiritual capital of the ancient world. It's where the best and brightest of Athens and Rome made a pilgrimage about 13 miles northwest of Athens to drink this magical potion, and according to them, you know, witness this vision of the goddess Persephone, and in the process, obliterate their fear of death. And nobody really knew what this potion was or what happened, because these ceremonies were all secret. In fact, the penalty for revealing what you saw on the inside was death. So we don't have much about this. We have little testimony and clues, but not much more than that, and no physical evidence that I could ever find, at least through the 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. Um, so I picked up the scent in 2007, 2008, when I started reading about the psychedelic literature that was coming out of Johns Hopkins University. They were administering psilocybin to volunteers, and these people were having deeply mystical experiences. And the way they described their single intervention with psilocybin very much reminded me of the testimony that I would read about folks like Plato, who said that he drank this potion and witnessed what was to be witnessed at Eleusis in a state of perfection. He calls it the blessed sight and vision. And it just really struck me how the, the, the striking similarity between these, these, these two testimonies, and it's all circumstantial, uh, but that was the moment when this book was born, and I thought, you know, if, if there really was a magic potion spiked with drugs, there's got to be evidence for it. And so from that moment on, I really went off on this crazy quest to track down the people who were trying to dig up evidence and, and see what was true or false. So talk about the challenges you faced doing this research. <laughs> there, there were lots of them. Uh, it's really hard to find information. I mean, for, for many, many years. Uh, so um, again, this is, you know, while, while I'm not practicing law, uh, th those, those first few years, it was nights and weekends just reading through the literature, um, trying to see what was there. You know, I read everything that Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck ever wrote, and uh, I started digging into these journals. And to be honest, there just wasn't much there. There's lots of interesting 
hints and clues in the literature. And there's some interesting pottery that has survived from the ancient world, which I struck out to go see. But I really wanted, again, to kind of marry 21st century science to this stuff. And all I could find were, were some studies by archaeochemists like Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania and Andrew Coe at MIT. And they were beginning to analyze ancient residue of wine vessels. And what McGovern discovered in uh, the late 90s, as a matter of fact, he was able to test vessels from either side of the Aegean. In the Mycenaean area, from about 1600-1500 BC, he found a pottery beer mug, as he describes it, which tested positive for the remains of wine, beer, and mead. And he found the same thing on the other side of the Aegean, dating to about the 8th century BC in, in Phrygia, around Gordium. And he refers to it as King Midas's tomb. As a matter of fact, they recreated the potion he was able to resurrect from these ancient bronze vessels, which, again, were tested positive for wine, beer, and mead. And, in fact, he teamed up with the Dogfish Head Brewery to make this potion, uh, which, uh, which they call Midas Touch. And so that kind of struck me when I started reading about that stuff. It's like uh, there were people actually trying to resurrect the, these potions that had gone missing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that, that really struck me. And so that, that, that's where I left it for a couple of years, and I didn't find much else. So let's get into the Eleusinian mysteries and talk about their place and importance in ancient Greek culture, who had access to them, and who led those uh, initiations and, and those rites. Yeah, Eleusis is really, really important. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to, to highlight that. I refer to it as the fight club of the ancient world. You know, the first uh, rule about Eleusis is that you don't talk about Eleusis. These were, these were very secret ceremonies, as I mentioned. As a matter of fact, there was this scandal in 414 B.C. One of Socrates' most famous disciples, Alcibiades, was caught trying to imitate these ceremonies outside the sacred precinct in Eleusis. This was happening in dining rooms, in aristocratic homes in Athens. And Alcibiades himself was implicated in this scandal for drinking some kind of spiked wine, the ancient sources tell us. And he had to flee. He had to, he had to get out of town. He was kind of the, uh, the Ed Snowden of the ancient world. I mean, it was, it was taken that seriously. And it, there was great pomp and circumstance as the initiates made their pilgrimage from Athens to Eleusis, they would walk along the sacred road, and once they arrived at, the, at this temple, they each were initiated into something we don't know what, but whatever it was, it obliterated their fear of death. And we have testimony from folks like Pindar, one of the great lyric poets of the ancient world, who said that only those who've seen what these mysteries have to offer will experience the afterlife. And you have folks like Aristotle, who said that the initiates came there not to learn something, mathain, but to experience something, pasain. In other words, it wasn't an intellectual discourse. So we think there was some kind of theatrical performance, and there was some kind of ceremony, but at its base, it was this blessed sight and vision, uh, which is what Plato refers to it as. And, and, and this vision, by the way, called to people for centuries. I mean, even after the Greeks, the Romans, you know, they assumed Eleusis as their own. So centuries later, Cicero, the Roman order, says that Eleusis is the most exceptional thing that Athens ever produced. It was the basis for not only living with joy, but for dying with a better hope. Again, really striking 
testimony for this capital of the ancient world. You know, before Jerusalem, before Rome, before Mecca, there was Eleusis. And for some reason, you know, we don't talk about this in our high school mythology classes or our Western Civ classes. You know, the, the Greeks who went there didn't think that Zeus was on top of a mountain hurling thunderbolts down at us hapless humans. Salvation for them was in a potion, and it was in this temple at Eleusis. So we think of the ancient Greeks like Socrates and Parmenides and Plato as being the logical and rational foundations of Western civilization and science. How did they reconcile these mysteries with that logic and reason? It's a really, really good question, and I owe full credit to the great scholar Peter Kingsley, whose research on this just completely changed my life. As I started reading those studies from Pat McGovern, like I mentioned, about the archaeochemists who were actually looking into these vessels and trying to tease out forensic evidence, at the same time, I also came across Peter Kingsley's work, and it had me completely think about the ancient world in different terms. I mean, the, the world that I dedicated all of my student life to and most of my adult life, it all came back around. What, what I realized is that the Greeks were equal part rational and irrational. You know, the, the very place that produced the first science, and we're talking Ionia, right, in the, in the eastern Aegean, between 600 and 400 B.C., this is the part of the world that is creating all the science that we take for granted today. Folks like Thales, Anaximander, Theodorus of Samos, if you've ever used a ruler or stuffed a key into a door or your car, it's because of Theodorus of Samos and this explosion of science that took place there in Ionia. At the same time, there were other folks from Ionia. We can call them magicians or healers or prophets, but they took off from Phokaya, which is north of Ephesus there in modern-day Turkey, or they took off from Samos, like in, in the case of Pythagoras, and, and they, they struck out into the Mediterranean. They went to France, and they went to Spain, and they went to, they went to Italy, southern Italy in particular, which uh, at the time was called Magna Graecia, Great Greece. You know, this philosophy wasn't born in Athens. It came there later. Some of the greatest philosophers, like Pythagoras and Parmenides, who you mentioned, were all actually in southern Italy, and the reason they were there is because they were carrying the sacred tradition from Ionia about entering the underworld. They had these spiritual techniques, which Peter Kingsley writes about, called incubation, which is essentially going into a dark place and lying still, sometimes for days at a time, until the vision appeared, or until you entered so deeply into a meditative or cataleptic state that spiritual insights would begin to arise. And all the folks that we associate with philosophy were inheritors of this tradition. You know, it's, it's sometimes said that uh, the entire history of Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. Well, Parmenides, who you mentioned, one of these pre-Socratics, was Plato's guru. And he was a devotee of this tradition from Phokaya, uh, a deeply spiritual tradition that just happens to be the same place where the sciences come from. And so it really, you know, uh, got me to, to rethink who these ancient Greeks were and what their priorities were. Because when, when you combine everything I just said with this concept of Eleusis, which is a different tradition, but nonetheless, we're still talking about these ceremonies and rites, which were engineered for an irrational experience, essentially. So one of the things about the Eleusinian mysteries was that 
very few people really had access to them. It was a very elitist cultural phenomena in ancient Greece. And also, they were led by women exclusively. Yeah, in fact, at first, Eleusis was a women's rite of initiation. Men weren't even allowed access to it until later, and we're not entirely sure how or why that happened. But yes, it is, even in the classical period, it was priestesses who were involved in the ceremonies. And it is unclear to me how elite it was. I mean, there were, there were only two real conditions precedent to seeking initiation. Number one, you had to speak some Greek. And number two, you couldn't have committed murder. So it's a pretty low bar, but you're right. There were dues that were owed to the hereditary families who ran this, this ritual. So it wasn't necessarily for the, for the lower strata of society. That's a good point. But it only happened once a year uh, around the fall equinox. And what we think is that as many as 3,000 initiates at a time could have been initiated there in Demeter's temple. And so you take 3,000 people a year times potentially 2,000 years, we're not really sure what these rites looked like in the archaic period, but you're talking potentially millions and millions of people. So what was the experience that they were having? And I'm curious um, how it relates to the mythological story of, of Demeter and Persephone and the relevance right, of that. For, right, right. For, for the, it, it's all based around grain. Uh, you know, we, we only have these, these clues, and one of the best clues that survived from the ancient world in addition to some of this sparse testimony that I mentioned, is the hymn to Demeter. It's this 496-line poem that survived from, we think, the 7th century B.C. It was only discovered in 1777. And in it, it, it it's basically the foundation myth for why Eleusis is where it is. You know, Demeter's daughter Persephone is out hunting flowers one fine afternoon, and she bends down to pick up a hundred-headed Narcissus and the earth gapes open, out comes Hades, and abducts her into the underworld. And Demeter is heartbroken, grief-stricken, and she scours the land for nine days and nights looking for her daughter. Uh, eventually, she lands at Eleusis, and the royal family comes out, and they offer her wine, and she says, no, that's a sacrilege. This is the lady of the grain. This is the grain goddess. And so what she asks for, and she lists out the ingredients of the potion that would be drunk by initiates ever after. And she says that what you put in this potion is barley, water, and mint. And uh, I talked to a famous beer scientist in, in Germany about this, in Bavaria. And he agreed it kind of reads like a simple recipe for beer. And, and I use that term a little loosely at, at Eleusis. Uh, but be, because of the, the, the prominence of the barley, that's what it seems like. And that's pretty much all we had for the longest time were just these little clues. And Homer also speaks about a kukion mixed up by the witch Circe. Um, his ingredients, interestingly enough, do include wine and other things like cheese and honey. And so we have competing recipes over the centuries for what this could have been. But clear to everybody, including Pat McGovern at UPenn, is that the power of this potion, it was something more than a high alcoholic content. Because remember, at the time, there is no distilled liquor that doesn't enter Europe for, for centuries and centuries afterwards. So all the Greeks would have had available to them were natural fermented products. As we all know, they cap out at an ABV of around you know, 12 to 15 percent. So there had to be something else in these ancient beverages to account for their power. And that's why Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck, back in 1978, were pointing to things like ergot 
this naturally occurring fungus that interestingly does grow on barley. It's more common on rye, but it will grow on barley, and it happens to be the fungus from which Albert Hoffman was able to synthesize LSD. So it's this really elegant theory. So you said that the descriptions you read and heard from the Johns Hopkins and NYU studies were very similar to the descriptions of people's experiences back in ancient Greece. What were they experiencing? And you share some beautiful descriptions by some of the people in your book. Right. That's what really struck me. You know, in the very first article that I read, uh, it was an article in The Economist called The God Pill, and it was one of the first accounts of the results coming out of Hopkins. And and it, it referred to a man named Gordon Wasson, the same Gordon Wasson who co-wrote that book, The Road to Eleusis, in 1978. And this is actually how the modern psychedelic movement got started. It was, it was Gordon himself who went down to Oaxaca, Mexico, to be initiated into a mushroom ceremony, magic mushroom ceremony. And this, this is how we discovered psilocybin-containing mushrooms. Uh, he wrote about his experience in 1957 in Life magazine, and uh, that, that's how the, the pop psychedelic revolution exploded. And so, you know, years later, uh, studies are happening, and then it all gets cut off during the war on drugs. It's suspended in the late 70s, and then it picks up again at Hopkins in the early 2000s. And as, as volunteers started coming in and having their experiences, it wasn't only similar to the kind of testimony you hear from the ancient world. It was very similar to what Gordon Watson himself had described in 1957, these visions that seem more real than real. And it, it's a very strange concept, but the psychologist William James, back in 1902, referred to it as this noetic experience. The idea of of witnessing something in the mind's eye that is somehow more real than real, something that sticks with you, has this curious sense of authority, is how James described it, over a hundred years ago. When you listen to the volunteers who come out of these trials at Hopkins and NYU, again, after only one experience with psilocybin, they use the same vocabulary about it being more real than real and, and losing all sense of time and space and and being suffused with love. I talked to one woman, Dinah Baser, who was diagnosed with cancer and enrolled in one of these trials to help deal with her anxiety. And, and she describes her experience as being bathed in God's love. And this is from an atheist, a woman who still describes herself as an atheist. And yet, the only word she could conjure to describe this experience as being bathed in God's love. And, and, and it changed her completely. After the experience, she talked to me about falling in love with her family all over again and realizing how genuine and, and kind people could be. Uh, and, and you see that a lot in the literature. This, this experience with psilocybin, even one, seems to elicit these pro-social behaviors, what some scientists are calling the science of awe, that it elicits qualities like self-sacrifice and kindness and resource sharing. And uh, it's just really incredible stuff. Yeah, so let's head into the Dionysian period of this and talk about how the mysteries shifted a bit. Right, so in Demeter and Persephone, you have the mother and daughter goddesses of the grain. And grain is this ancient thing that goes back to prehistoric times. And, and, and I spend some time in the book, a couple chapters, talking about the prehistory of beer, which is really, really interesting. There, there's a, a, a team from Stanford 
a year and a half ago, who released a study claiming that there was evidence of beer fermentation as far back as 13,000 years at the Rockefeller Cave in Israel. And so it was interesting to me to see that concept of, you know, a sacred beer, or what I call the religion of brewing, surviving thousands and thousands of years and being picked up by the Greeks as an intentional kind of throwback to prehistory, because the mysteries of Eleusis is this oral tradition and the Greeks whom we associate with wine are still using this beer potion, which is interesting. But then you have Dionysus, and Dionysus is the Greek god of, of ecstasy and mystical rapture and the theater and wine, obviously. He's, he's the god of a new sacrament for a new millennium, and he begins to insinuate himself into the mysteries of Eleusis. And, and I think it's a ploy by these hereditary families to, to coax these followers of Dionysus into the temple. Because what's happening is that Dionysus is calling to his devotees, the Minas, again, which is mainly women, just the way Eleusis uh, was begun. And he's calling them out to these open-air churches and the forests and the mountains to drink some kind of sacramental wine that sends them into ecstasy, where the whole goal of the religion of Dionysus was to become one with Dionysus. And it sounds crazy and mystical, but you have gold standard scholars like E.R. Dodds, who in his introduction to Euripides the Bacchae in 1944, says that the whole point of this religion is to become one with Dionysus, or the fellow worshippers, or the life of the earth itself. It's this very mystical experience, and so it begs the question, what kind of wine was this? So yeah, tell us more about this wine and what you discovered I believe, well, I think this this relates to the beer discoveries, but you discover in, in the written record somewhere somebody had found ergot in the teeth of a skull somewhere in Spain. Right, that's right. It's, it's one of the more mind-boggling discoveries. So I guess before we get to the wine, the way I conclude the investigation into the mysteries of Eleusis is by looking for actual evidence of ergotized beer. Because remember, again, in 1978, these three scholars come along and they're claiming that beer spiked with ergot is the potion that fueled the mysteries and, in their mind, even even fueled the development of Western civilization. Uh, but there's no evidence for this. And even though I'd found those mixed potions of honey, wine, and beer that Pat McGovern had turned up on either side of the Aegean, there was no evidence, there was no archaeochemical evidence for a spiked potion in ancient Greece, whether in Minoan or Mycenaean times or into the classical period. I couldn't find anything. And I even reached out to the premier authority on this research in Greece, a woman named Tanya Valamotti at the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki, and I said, Tanya, is there any evidence for spiked beer, for this kukion? And the answer is basically no. So I had to take a step back and think about what the ancient world actually looked like. And in, in the wake of Alexander the Great, and he's called the Great for a reason, the Greek influence in the ancient world stretched from Iberia in the far west all the way to Afghanistan in the far east. It was enormous. And as you can imagine, not everybody could make their way over to Eleusis in southern Greece. It just wasn't feasible. And so the question I had was, maybe it's possible despite the sacrilege that was involved, that some ancient Greeks chose to reenact these mysteries elsewhere. You know, far from Athens, where Alcibiades got in trouble, 
and where people couldn't be looking over their shoulders. And so as, as I dug into the literature, I came across this amazing archaeological site in Catalonia in a tiny town called Pontos, which is just inland from a very well-known Greek colony called Emporion, which was founded in the 6th century BC. And to be totally honest, I'd never heard of it. And I don't think many classicists have either. When you think ancient Greece, the first thought that comes to your mind is not Spain. But in any event, as I was reading about this archaeological site, all the pieces started coming together. The archaeologist who'd been digging there since 1990, Enrique de Pons, turns up one Greek artifact after another. She's turning up little terracotta heads that she describes as representations of Demeter or Persephone. She turns up a kalasos which is a piece of pottery, which shows Triptolemus. And Triptolemus is the missionary who was dispatched by Demeter and Persephone to bring, again, what I call the religion of brewing, uh, or the way the original myth goes, the knowledge of farming all across Europe. He's dispatched from Eleusis to teach people how to farm, basically, and to teach people to show reverence for the grain. And here in Spain, you have this piece of pottery showing Triptolemus. And the only place I'd ever seen him before was at the museum in Eleusis. And it's really, really strange. What would he be doing in Spain? And then it gets even better, because there, there, there's a ritual center at this farm, which is essentially a Greek farm, and it dates to around 225 to 175 B.C. Again, not too long after the classical Greek mysteries themselves. And what Enriqueta turns up inside what she calls a domestic chapel is an altar, a Greek altar of pentelic marble that came from Greece. She turns up a hearth, and she uses the Greek word for the hearth, eschara. She turns up the bones of female dogs that were sacrificed to what she posits is Hecate, the Greek goddess of witchcraft, the mother of Circe, the same Circe who's mixing up these potions. So, you know, all the, the dots are connecting, and then the unthinkable. She also turns up a tiny chalice, a miniature vessel in the mid-90s. And she enlists a young archaeobotanist named Jordi Juan Tesserras, and he subjects it to analysis under optical microscopy, scanning electron microscope, and what does he turn up? None other than the residue of beer and ergot. And for the first time in 42 years, we have the most compelling data that seems to vindicate this old hypothesis from 1978 about the Greeks indulging in ergotized beer. But as you mentioned, it wasn't just that. They also found the remains of ergot in a human jawbone inside this ritual center. And so it makes you think of a skull cult uh, or something very prehistoric. And clearly there are, you know, there's a mix of Celtic influence and Iberian influence and Greek influence, but Greek nonetheless. Enriqueta uh, herself calls this a renaissance of Greek influence at the time. So it raises very well-founded questions, is what was happening here in any way related to what drew the pilgrims to Eleusis for 2,000 years? There's so many dots to connect in here. Maybe, maybe we should head in back to Dionysus and, and the practice of drinking the spiked wine to become Dionysus. That's, it's a perfect segue. And, and again, there is a relationship. In addition to all the artifacts I mentioned there in Spain, Enriqueta also turns up a vase from the 5th century B.C. showing a Dionysian parade, a parade, a drunken parade in honor of Dionysus. And the cup in which they discovered 
this ergotized beer is it's in a Greek shape, very specific shape called a kantharos, and it's, it's the vessel that was only used by Dionysus. So once again, he's insinuating himself into these mysteries. It started as a mystery tradition to the grain goddesses, but Dionysus does weave his way in there. So it's very interesting. What Dionysus eventually becomes, though, obviously, is the god of wine. And so the question is, you know, what does this site in Spain have to do with Eleusis? What does Dionysus have to do with any of it? You know, these, these are open and big questions. The, big, the, the biggest question is whether or not this colony in Spain is emblematic of what was happening in Greece. And frankly, we, we just don't know. It's the first evidence to come to light in 42 years. This is the beginning, only the beginning, of many, many questions. I have, I have many more questions that are coming to me daily and continuing to diligence this stuff. But speaking of Dionysus, you know, he has similar but distinct mysteries surrounding him. Part of it is out into the wilderness, like I described. Part of his devotees are right there in the heart of Athens, at the southern slope of the Acropolis, in the theater of Dionysus. Now, the ancient Greeks didn't go to the theater to eat a hot dog and drink a beer. They went to the theater of Dionysus to drink wine, and the wine that they would consume there was called trima. And trima, in ancient Greek, means rubbed or pounded, and Karl Ruck, that classics professor at Boston University, he thinks it indicates the drugs that were pounded into this special wine, because wine at the time is routinely described as unusually intoxicating and sometimes hallucinogenic and potentially lethal. The second you start looking at ancient Greek literature, you're, you're finding stories about very potent wine. Yes, and the line between the psychedelic properties of the wine and the lethalness of the wine, that would require a certain experiential expertise, I would imagine. Exactly. In, in the book, I say that posology is the secret to pharmacology. Uh, the Greeks knew what they were doing with drugs, period. And we have the evidence for it in Dioscorides, for example, who lives in the first century A.D. Interestingly, the exact same period that the Gospels themselves are being written. And he leaves us a manuscript called the Materia Medica, and in Book 5 of this magnum opus by Dioscorides, who becomes known as the father of pharmacology, the father of drugs, he has no less than 56 recipes for spiked wine. Spiking wine with all kinds of things, like salvia or hellebore or frankincense or the hallucinogenic henbane plant or mandrake, which can be visionary or lethal at the wrong dose. And he even refers to something that in Latin became known as solano maniaco, like manic solanaceous plants. Um, today we call it black nightshade. I'm not sure if it's the same nightshade they were dealing with, but Dioscorides specifically refers to it in Greek as something that would provoke visions. Fantasias u aedais, he says in Greek, which is not unpleasant visions. Psychedelic. Again, the Greeks very much knew how to handle their spiked wine, and if Dioscorides is writing about it then, they represent a tradition that goes all the way back through Homer several centuries before, where wine is routinely described as a pharmakon, right? The word for drug, where we get the word pharmacy. Euripides in the Bacchae, which is this lasting uh, monument, basically, to Dionysus, the play that was unveiled at his theater in 405 BC. He refers to wine as a pharmakon, which, yes, it can mean a medicine, it can mean a treatment, 
But at its root, it's a drug. Wine was seen as this versatile product. And Pat McGovern at UPenn refers to wine as the universal palliative. It was there to spike with everything from toxins to kill somebody to medicine to heal somebody to magical plants to offer these visions. So drug, well, particularly recreational drug use in our culture is highly stigmatized and frowned upon. That's considered to be the wrong way or the wrong drugs and the wrong approach to drugs. Whereas back in ancient Greece and Rome, they had a very different perspective of this, didn't they? I think, I think we had a different perspective not that long ago. I mean, none of this stuff was illegal, mind you, in the 19th century and for many years before. And, and even in the Roman period, it largely wasn't illegal. You know, witchcraft and things like that, the way you use drugs, if you used a drug to kill somebody, obviously, that was frowned upon. But I mean, just the abstract usage of drugs themselves was not only not illegal, it was considered natural. In fact, I sat in, in the office of the Minister of Antiquities of Greece, was Polixeni Veleni herself, talking about this concept. And the word that she uses to describe the ancient Greeks' relationship with this world is natural, that, that the concept was natural, that you would avail yourselves of everything nature had to offer. I mean, today we can speak of 391,000 species of plants, 80,000 of which are edible. The plants were here before us by a factor of many millions of years. In fact, uh, there are some medical geographers who claim that we co-evolved with this stuff. And that they wouldn't have an effect on our neurochemical system unless there was something deeply organic and natural about these substances. And, and the Greeks didn't shy from that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the sort of passing of the torch or the vine from Dionysus to Jesus. And they coexisted around the same time in the same part of the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. They're there at the same place at the same time. And this gets into controversial territory. But to be clear, this doesn't have to be controversial. It wasn't always controversial. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself wrote a paper in 1950 entitled The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity. There's long been the idea that Christianity absorbed some of these practices. Uh, you know, we're talking about the Eleusinian mysteries on the one hand, or the mysteries of Dionysus. When you're talking about a sacrament of wine used by a son of God born of a virgin, most people think about Jesus. If I just said that phrase 2,500 years ago, the first thing that would come to your mind is Dionysus. He is known or thought to have invented wine. He was referred to in the very first line of Ripides the Bacchae as Pais Dios, a son of God. He was born of the virgin Semele, who was impregnated by Zeus in the form of an eagle, just like we see depictions of the visitation upon Mary of this dove who impregnates her with the seed of the divine. So all these interesting parallels have always been there, even from the very beginning. You have a church father like Justin Martyr trying to explain it away as a diabolical trap, that Dionysus is just there as a red herring to distract you from the actual Son of God. But these parallels have always been there, and I think the, the real question is not whether there was a borrowing, but to what extent and why. And Dr. King himself credits the general trends of the time. He says it was an unconscious process conditioned by uh, contact with these older religions. And so with that in mind, 
in the book, I look into lots of different things to show that continuity from the pagan Dionysian wine to the new Christian wine. And you see lots of interesting things. And I, and I focus on the Gospel of John specifically because the Greek language there is just so rich. And I should point out again that, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek for Greek speakers. Paul's letters, 21 of the 27 letters, uh, books of the New Testament, are written to Greek communities, like Corinth. Remember his letter to the Corinthians? He's writing that to a community an hour west of Eleusis, in today's terms. And he writes to the Philippians and the Thessalonians in Greece. And he writes to the Greek speakers in Ephesus. So these people were steeped in these traditions, and it's hard to believe that they just disappeared in one year. Uh, I'd like to say that the ancient world didn't go to bed as pagans in 33 AD and wake up Christian in 34 AD. You know, this was an intercultural process that took a couple hundred years, and I call it the period of, of Paleo-Christianity. And when you look into that period, or even to the Gospels and Paul's letters themselves, you find very interesting things. My favorite example, not to give you too many, is 1 Corinthians 11.30. I want everybody to look up 1 Corinthians 11.30, because in it, Paul is essentially yelling at the Corinthians for mixing up the wrong kind of wine for their Eucharist. And he says, it's a cup of demons. And he says, for this reason, you Corinthians, a number of you are falling sick and falling asleep. And the word he uses for falling asleep is koimontai in Greek. That word does not mean to fall asleep. It means to die. And we know that because it's the exact same word that John uses for the, the famous resurrection of Lazarus. When Jesus brings him back from the dead, that word back from the dead is koimontai, the same word. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is it possible that the Corinthians were drinking a lethal wine? Again, there's no distilled liquor, and it immediately makes me think of Dioscorides, who's writing this Materia Medica about spiked wine at the exact same time that Paul and the Gospels are writing about this sacramental wine that brings salvation. Very, very interesting parallels like that. So is it your opinion, your thesis, that what Jesus was sharing with his apostles and followers was a psychedelic spiked wine? Right. So I want to be very clear about what the, what the thesis is. I don't think we can know what happened at the Last Supper. It may even be unknowable. We have a term for the wine that was served there, or at least a cup. We call it the Holy Grail, right? Mm -hmm. And no one's ever found it, and it has these mythical overtones about it for a reason. Because to find the Holy Grail is to find everything. It's, it's to find the whole reason for Christianity. Pope Francis refers to the Eucharist as essential for salvation, the beating heart of the Church. It is the climax of the Mass, and I say this as someone who went to Catholic school for 13 years, including four years studying with the Jesuits. There is no Christianity without the Eucharist, so we all want to find that blood of Jesus. I'm not claiming that this is what happened at the Last Supper. What I'm claiming is that especially if you read John's Gospel, the last Gospel to be written, he is portraying Jesus kind of like a second coming of Dionysus. And I think the message to the Greek pagans at the time, right, this, this, uh, this rich resource of potential converts to the new religion, I think the message he's sending is that the wine you're going to find in Christianity is just as powerful as the wine of Dionysus, the wine that everybody knows from their ancestors for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
results in ecstasy, nothing less than ecstasy and becoming one with the God. And as you look deeper into John's Gospel, you find these little hints and clues, like the wedding at Cana, for example, this famous water-to-wine miracle. You know, that only occurs in John's Gospel. Why is that? There are biblical scholars who refer to that moment in the second chapter of John as the signature miracle of Dionysus, because that's what it is. In the ancient Greek world, on the island of Andros, just off the mainland, water would miraculously turn to wine on the Epiphany, the same day that Christians celebrate the Epiphany, January 6th, and wine was said to flow like a river for the Andrians. It's really, really bizarre stuff. Why only in John do we find this miracle, where, by the way, the guests at that wedding were already drunk. There's a funny line in the Greek of John there, where the, the, the steward is saying, you know, we usually don't serve wine that's this good to guests who are already drunk. So why is Jesus unveiling this magical wine to people who are already drunk in a party atmosphere? It's one of the strangest episodes in the Gospels. So there's no proof that it was spiked psychedelic wine, but all indication, well, at least some indications seem to be implying that. I mean, as you can probably tell, I'm on the hunt for proof. I mean, the, the, these correspondences are interesting. They've been there. Scholars have talked about this for over 100 years. This goes back to, to J.G. Fraser and the Golden Bough at the end of the 19th century. Dr. King weighs into this. You know, scholars at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton have been writing articles about this for decades. To me, I want to see the science, and I'm wondering if there's wine out there like this ergotized beer that we found in, in Spain. I mean, that for me is, is the Holy Grail. And we haven't found it in an undeniably Christian context yet. I do think it's out there, and I do think with enough diligence that we're going to turn something up. In the latter part of the book, I do talk about some of the very first evidence for quote-unquote psychedelic wine. And again, it took me years and years and years of going through these archaeobotany journals to try and tease something out, because when you approach the world's leading archaeochemists and archaeobotanists, and ask them, is there any evidence for psychedelic wine? The universal answer you're going to get is no. Now, you're going to get answers that there's psychoactive wine or spiked wine. The same Pat McGovern at UPenn that I mentioned turned up a really interesting specimen of wine from Abydos in Egypt from 3150 B.C., wine that was spiked with savory, wormwood, blue tansy, balm, senna, coriander, chermander, mint, sage, and thyme. Uh, it's an ancient Egyptian herbal wine that finds its way somehow into Galilee, of all places, where eventually we're going to meet Jesus. In 1700 B.C., another wine was dated. It was unveiled in 2014 as the world's oldest wine cellar. This is Andrew Coe at MIT. He found a similarly spiked wine in a, in a palatial residence that we think belonged to the Canaanites. And there he found wine spiked with honey, storax, terebinth, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, and cinnamon. This is nothing like the wine of today. Wine was routinely spiked, and so the big question for us was it spiked with drugs that were visionary, psychedelic drugs. And with leads from McGovern and Co., again, I go back to the journals, and I'm trying to find something, and lo and behold, I find a paper that was published 2000, 20 years ago, by a woman named Marina Ciraldi, who is from Naples and got her Ph.D. in archaeology in the U.K., goes back to Italy to dig at the Villa Vesuvio, which is found just east of Pompeii, 
And like everything else in Pompeii, after Vesuvius exploded in 79 AD, there were some miraculous finds. As they're digging, they find seven dolia, these storage vessels, of wine in a wine cellar. They call it the Cella Vinaria, and there's a threshing floor there. And so all indications, in fact, the archaeologist responsible for the dig says that it was a farm specifically designed for the production of drugs. And the reason she says this is because what Marina found in this waterlogged sample, pristinely preserved, were over 50 species of plants and herbs, among them opium, cannabis, henbane, and that black nightshade again, that Dioscorides called psychedelic. Now, again, I'm not sure that, that our black nightshade is the same as Dioscorides, but henbane for certain is hallucinogenic. And with opium and cannabis in the mix, it all makes for a very witchy sample. And I say that because in addition to those plants, they also found the 60 bone fragments belonging to lizards. That's a really weird brew. It makes you almost think about Macbeth. So we can say, somewhat definitively, that at least the ingredients were there, right? So, so why this wine was consumed, if it was consumed at all, we don't know. And I want to subject that sample to archaeochemical analysis. I talked to Marina by Skype last week. She's in the UK. She has that original sample from 20 years ago. She's rooting through her garage as we speak right now. So we can test this stuff. And this is the kind of work I want to do for, for years and years to come. Yeah, it's a fascinating project. <laughs> I'm, I really <laughs> look forward to hearing you know, further, further evidence, further, further discoveries. Um, Christianity, you know, the first few centuries of Christianity looks very different from post-fourth century Christianity. And, you know, after the fourth century, the newly minted church cracked down very heavily on what were actually the foundations and the foundational practices of early Christianity. Yes, I, I, I believe so. Again, it, it's, it's this period that I refer to as Paleo-Christianity, um, the Mass or the Eucharist, in quotes, right, that was celebrated by these earliest Christians. That's what interests me. I want to know what a pagan in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries B.C., thought of the Eucharist. I want to know what they thought of it. And when you read John, like I mentioned, and I go into detail about this in the book, it seems to me that it's, it's not inconceivable that they would have interpreted, right? They would have interpreted the Eucharist as something with which they were very familiar. But there's something interesting here. Dionysus was democratizing this sacrament, which is interesting. Remember, he, he shows up in Eleusis, and there are elements of him in that chapel in Spain, but the mysteries of Dionysus are very different from Eleusis in this respect. Dionysus was a democratizer. You didn't have to go to a specific place to find him. He was unleashing this sacramental drink uh, into the forests and mountains, right? So in, in that respect, it's different from the state-administered mysteries at Eleusis. But what Jesus did is something even more unthinkable. You have to think into the mind of the first, second, third century Christian— what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper is he's inviting that sacrament into the home, right, into the dining room. Just think about da Vinci's famous painting there. That's something that Dionysus himself never managed to do. Like, like I said, it, it was mainly a wild outdoor religion, and things got out of control. As a matter of fact, in 186 B.C., we have the accounts from the Roman historian Livy 
telling us about this crackdown on the Dionysian mysteries, or of Bacchus, as he was known in Italy. Uh, we hear that as many as 6,000 devotees of the mysteries of Dionysus were killed by the Roman Senate because things were getting out of control. What, what is Jesus doing? Or what do people think Jesus was doing, more importantly, a couple centuries later? He's taking that sacrament from the forest into the dining room. And that's where you find the earliest Christians as well. You know, in the first three centuries, there's no church. There are no basilicas, because Christianity is an illegal religion. It's not until the fourth century in Constantine that it comes out of the shadows. So where are people celebrating the Eucharist before then? It's in house churches, and it's in subterranean catacombs, like the ones under Rome, which I spend several chapters in the book exploring. And there's just remarkable frescoes and imagery that you see about people celebrating the sacrament. And what you see are women consecrating the Eucharist. And I'm not sure how far to extrapolate that or what it all means, but I do know that women, just like they were integral to the mysteries of Eleusis and Dionysus, women were integral to the birth of Christianity. Women and drugs. <laughs> well, it's, 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 very, it's very possible. You, ju you just need to think like a first century Christian. And if you go into these catacombs, you'll see the same thing that I did, like in the Hypogeum of the Aurelii, for example, which is controlled by the Vatican. And I had to get special permission to go investigate it. It's dated to the middle of the third century AD. And what you find there is, for me, mind-boggling. I, I saw a fresco of the witch Circe, not because I think it's Circe, but because the Vatican published this beautiful monograph after the 11-year restoration of this Hypogeum, itself saying that the witch Circe, right, the famous potion maker, is there in a Christian tomb. What is she doing in a Christian tomb? And elsewhere in that same Hypogeum, you see women, women being initiated into some kind of mysteries. Uh, there's a German scholar in the 1970s who wrote about this, saying that it was a Dionysian mystery or some kind of hybrid pagan-Christian mystery tradition happening there, which makes total sense if you think about it. It's just an intercultural encounter that, that would have been hard to escape. If you're just joining us, my guest is Brian Murescu. He's the author of this fascinating new book we've been talking about, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And this is The Magical Mystery Tour. So again, post-4th century Christianity completely changes the whole thing. It's, it seems to me, from, from reading your book, not only do they banish women from the Church, they also determine what is the correct Eucharist, and basically outlawing drugs and herbs and things like that, and essentially creating a kind of a, a placebo Eucharist. And what that suggested to me was that the new iteration of Christianity was now becoming basically a placebo religion, because it was no longer founded on the direct experience of God or, or the divine. It was based on faith in what the Church Fathers were now propounding to be the Orthodox, well, not, not the quote-unquote Orthodox, but, but the, the newly Orthodox Church. Uh, that's the hypothesis that I explore, and, and, I, and I think it's worth exploring. 
in addition to everything else we've talked about, because if you look at the Church Father Hippolytus, for example, you know, he lives from about 170 to 235 A.D. He writes in his Refutatio Omnium Aeresium, his refutation of all the heresies, he talks about this Gnostic, this guy Marcus, this heretic, who is having women consecrate their own wine. And he uses the word pharmakon seven times in Greek to describe this heretical ceremony. So we can reasonably conclude that at least some congregations were using some kind of spiked wine. And when you pair that with this discovery at the Villa Vesuvio of this wine spiked with opium and cannabis and henbane and black nightshade, again, for me, it raises well-founded questions that are ripe for a very serious, very sober academic discussion and, and scientific analysis, which I think is only, only just beginning. So the Catholic Church was terrified of drugs and witches, but not for the reasons that we've been led to believe. What were they really afraid of, and why did they wage this, this comprehensive war on, on drugs and women? You know, literally so, killing hundreds of thousands of women, often mothers and daughters and grandmothers within the same family. Yeah, this, this is evidence I, I turned up in, in one of the archives at the Vatican. Um, there are lots of claims about that, and, and, and there are lots of writings about witchcraft, and we don't know why the Inquisition went after witches, and certainly the Inquisition went after lots of people. There was a big counter-reformation happening, and there were lots of different Inquisitions, by the way. There was the Spanish and the Portuguese and the medieval Inquisition, and there was the Roman Inquisition. But, you know, across the centuries there, from the 15th to the 18th centuries, we do know about these witch hunts, and I, I put numbers on it. The most conservative estimate is 90,000 prosecutions, 45,000 executions, you know, hundreds of thousands could have died in captivity. Another, you know, millions were generally affected by this. And that, that's not just me saying that, that that's journalist Colin Murphy, who writes about the Inquisition and the making of the modern world, that there, there was a campaign, it seems, to stamp out traditional pharmacological knowledge, um, that one of the reasons why the witch was perceived as the arch-heretic was because they were competing with that traditional Eucharist. And we have writings from the 1420s, 1430s, for example, describing women mixing a heretical wine or mixing up what, what became known as the witch's ointment. In fact, the Pope's personal physician, Andres Laguna, and he was the personal physician to Pope Julius III. In 1554, he's writing about witches mixing up these witchy unguents, and he even lists the ingredients. And oddly enough, he talks about hemlock and mandrake and, and henbane and black nightshade, the same kinds of things that you find in the Villa Vesuvio 1,500 years earlier. So there seems to be this strange continuity of traditional healing and know-how that made its way all the way through the Middle Ages, right to the Pope's desk in the 16th century. And I posit that at least one of the reasons was because of, of these witches and this alternative Eucharist they were mixing up. And, and, I, and I did find evidence inside the archive of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, I made an appointment to review one of these manuscripts. Explain what that archive is. Right, so Carlo Ginsberg, very well-known historian, refers to it as the Archives of Repression. <laughs> and it, it's there you find some of the accounts, whatever survived, of the Inquisition. 
the, the church's uh, attempt to maintain orthodoxy in, in the faith. And like I said, much of it is, is counter-reformational. I'm not claiming that, that witches were, were the prime suspect of this, but they were implicated, for sure. They were implicated as heretics after the 1420s, 1430s. This is when the campaign against women and witches, I think, begins to, to heat up. And so I made an appointment there because what I was looking for was written evidence of women being targeted by the Inquisition specifically for knowledge of plants and herbs. And I did find, thanks to the uh, intrepid work of an Italian scholar, Oscar Di Simplicio, he led me to a very thick volume there in the archive where a woman named Lucrezia, who was nothing else but a witch from Tuscany, was uh, interrogated and under trial. I, I counted 39 witnesses who came forward to talk about the kinds of things she was mixing up, like incense and, and wine spiked with ivy, which is interesting, and, and even stealing the Eucharist from the church, and oddly enough, mixing up an unguent uh, which had lizards in it, right? Maybe it's those same lizards from the Villa Vesuvio, again, uh, 1,600, 1,500 years earlier. All these interesting parallels started popping out at me, and I don't know what to make of it, but the clues are there. And near the end of the book, you write, the entire history of Christianity has been one continuous battle over the Eucharist. There's a right one and a wrong one. Right. So if you think about some of the things that we've discussed, remember Paul at the very beginning is yelling at the Corinthians for mixing up their lethal wine. And again, please go back to 1 Corinthians 11.30 and take a look at that uh, in the Greek if you can. Um, and then the, the church father, Hippolytus, is talking about uh, these women, under the direction of Marcus, mixing up a wine spiked with a pharmacon. And then you have the Inquisition going after uh, witches, uh, mixing up a heretical wine of their own, in addition to incense and unguents. And then later, in the New World, you have someone like Hernando Ruiz de Alarcón, who writes uh, a treatise against the heathen superstitions where he very proudly talks about burning their drugs and getting rid of their peyote. Uh, and then interestingly, a couple hundred years later, the federal government gets involved. Uh, I found a, a letter from the commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1890, and I think it's the first federal action prohibiting uh, the use of any drug, and it happens to be peyote. It wasn't cocaine, uh, and it wasn't opium, it wasn't cannabis. That, that's later, that's in the 20th century. But in the late 19th century, the BIA has this quote in this letter. It's saying that the use of peyote by the Native Americans is, quote, interfering quite seriously with the work of the missionaries on the reservations. And I thought to myself, once again, there's this concept of the right Eucharist and the wrong Eucharist. And the Church is implicated in some of it, and now you have the halls of power from Washington, D.C., sticking their hands into it. And the whole effort, to me, appears to be who has access to God and why? And what do these sacraments mean? And going back to Rome, at a point that the Eleusian mysteries are about to be outlawed by the Roman Empire, there was a warning given to the emperor that if the mysteries were to die, that life itself would become unlivable. I think that's roughly the quote. Could you talk about that and also talk about that in relation to our current state of the world? 
Yeah, that, that's one of the craziest things I've, I've come across. Um, I found it in Carl Kerenyi's book on Eleusis from 1962. Again, gold standard classicist and scholar. He records this episode in 364 where the Roman hierophant and nobleman Praetextatus is having this conversation with Emperor Valentinian, who is trying to get rid of the mysteries. And they soon will disappear at the end of the 4th century A.D., and Praetextatus is saying you, you can't get rid of these mysteries, and he's referring specifically to Eleusis. He's saying that Eleusis is the thing that holds the entire human race together, right? It doesn't hold Greek or Roman civilization together. Praetextatus says whatever Eleusis is, whatever vision is unleashed there, it's important to the life of the planet and our species. And he says without it, life would become exactly as you said, abiotos, which is unlivable. Now, Albert Hoffman knows about this, and when he writes about Eleusis in the 20th century, this is the guy who discovers LSD, he thinks to himself, and he writes about this, he says, you know, what does Eleusis have to teach us today? And he says, you know, alienation from nature is the root cause of ecological devastation and climate change. And Albert Hoffman looked to LSD and other psychedelics as ways of reconnecting us to nature. And, and it seems like hints of that are, are coming out of these clinical trials from Hopkins and NYU. And again, to be clear, what they're doing is clinical research for specified conditions like anxiety, depression, end-of-life distress. But this is my own opinion. I do see hints of the mysteries and this vision that was elicited in antiquity. And the question for us today is, you know, will this become available for people, broadly speaking, in a responsible way, say 10 years from now, for example? in licensed, regulated retreat centers, under the supervision of highly trained medical personnel, maybe even psychedelic chaplaincy, right? Well, we have the ability to experience what our ancestors may have experienced, not only in ancient Greece, but paleo-Christianity. This is, this is the question I want to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to. You suggest that there's a schizophrenic identity split that persists to this day. And you ask the question, are we, speaking of our current culture, are we Greek or are we Christian? What do you mean by that? So it, it goes back to the very beginning of the book, and I wrap it around in, in the end. This is, this is the question that, that guided my investigation. And we talked a little bit about it in terms of that rational, irrational heritage that we have from the Greeks. I mean, the, the prevailing narrative is that you know, the Greeks drafted the blueprints for Western civilization. They gave us science and the arts and democracy and the very concept of the university and all these things we take for granted. But then Christianity came along and they saved our soul, which is interesting if you think about it. It always struck me as a student of the classics. It was undoubted that Plato and Cicero and Marcus Aurelius, they found salvation, nothing less than salvation at Eleusis. They keyed into the mysteries of life before Jesus. Uh, so how do they get all this stuff right about the world today? And how do they get the most important thing wrong, the meaning of life? And bizarre as it is, I look to psychedelics as something that potentially both the ancient Greeks and early Christians could have had in common. And I look to that technology today, potentially, as something that could heal this divide between logic and reason on the one hand and faith and belief on the other. And, you know, what will happen in these trials at Hopkins and NYU next year is something I'm particularly interested in. They had an experiment with religious leaders 
and psilocybin, the results of which we don't know, but it will be unveiled next year. And the big question will be, can these substances genuinely elicit mystical experiences? And what does that mean for faith today? And what does it mean for society at large? So they're not accepting um, descriptions of religious experience from from lay people. They want they want it to come from official religious people. That that was the protocol for this for this experiment. It, it's happened before. There, there there were similar experiments in the 1960s, for example. There was a famous incident, the Miracle Marsh Chapel, where the Harvard Psilocybin Project, headed up by by Timothy Leary and Dick Alpert who were dosing divinity students with psilocybin. And lo and behold, Houston Smith was one of those students. Houston Smith, who I mentioned at the very beginning, this great religious scholar of the 20th century, happened to have been dosed with psilocybin in this experiment. And he described it as the greatest cosmic homecoming I've ever experienced. So there were always serious students of religion who thought that under the right conditions, these substances, if properly used and sparingly used, could result in in this transformation of consciousness. And I love what Houston says about it. It's not about altered states, it's about altered traits. Does this medicine help? Does it really make us better people? And how do we leverage this? Uh, There's a million questions that we're just beginning to ask. Mm -hmm. Considering the scope of this project, you wrote that you have not partaken of this psychedelic experience. Why not? (laughs) The great irony here is that I'm a psychedelic virgin, uh, and I was talking about this on the, on the Joe Rogan experience a couple of days ago, which they found very entertaining. Um, the answer is a very long one, but the shorter answer is I wanted to approach this data uh, as a skeptic, and I, and I wanted the evidence to speak for itself. You know, if, if you want to read a book about a guy who does drugs and, and finds God, there's lots of great books out there going back to William James, who we mentioned, and Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts and Terence McKenna. And I love this literature. I love it. But my approach is different. And, and the reason I abstained is to be able to cultivate uh, sober conversations about this with religious leaders and institutions and, and with academic institutions and folks like yourself, just so we can have this open dialogue about what this all means without you know, sensationalizing it and, and just having an honest conversation about what's going to happen here, because these drugs are moving towards legalization, just like cannabis across the country, for example. And my, my big question is safety and efficacy and what, what happens to this stuff and how should we talk to our kids about this? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a father of two daughters and uh, I worry about this stuff, but I also find it deeply, deeply mysterious. Mm-hmm. Have you had this type of religious experience without drugs? I I knew someone was eventually going to ask me that. Um, I I don't think I could have written this book in the absence of what I call a mystical experience. So the the short answer is yes. And it it wasn't through drugs. I feel very, very blessed in my life. And I won't get into specifics, but I look back on my life as something of a miracle. Um, I was the middle son of three boys, and neither of my brothers had the opportunity to go to college. Uh, I, I was the only one who got into this Jesuit prep school where I'm learning Latin and Greek and not knowing what to make of it. And because of that, I'm offered a free scholarship to Brown to keep studying this. And I go off to law school. And when I look back on my life, it looks like this finely crafted novel that I I really can't explain. And I may not have done psychedelics, but when I talked to Dinah Baser about being bathed in God's love, 
I certainly know what she's talking about, and it, it makes me emotional. So I'm, I'm really curious if your view of things, of the world and you know, life and everything, has changed from the beginning of this journey 13 years ago. Uh, yeah, it's, it's consumed most of my adult life, and I never intended that to happen 12 years ago. But as each piece and each clue came together, this narrative started to evolve, and the importance of this work really struck me. It, was, it seemed to be an area that nobody was looking at in this multidisciplinary way, and, and I think it does deserve that attention. Uh, so it, it has personally changed my life, I would say for the better, just because I love talking to these people. Uh, I love talking to the experts who know more than me. I love talking to Andrew Coe at MIT, and I'm very fortunate to speak with Greg Nagy at Harvard uh, every time I have a question about this stuff. And uh, I got to travel to some of the most iconic locations on the planet and, and have these conversations. For me, this is an absolute dream come true. Well, the book is, is absolutely fascinating. I just felt completely enwrapped with the journey that you took us on. Well, well thank you. That means a lot to me. The psychedelic sacrament was also used to commune with the dead, and you write a lot about these funerary banquets. How did the ancient Greek think of the dead and the other world? Right. So for the ancient Greeks, death was very different than it is for us today. The dead were present. The dead were available. And this is also true with the Romans. I quote the work of an incredible scholar, Ramsey McMullen, professor emeritus of history at Yale. And he writes about the refrigerium in the Roman period. The refrigerium was essentially a banquet for the dead. And it was a way of the ancient Romans communing with, with their ancestors in these ritual meals, often using wine, where it said the dead themselves participated. This is what Ramsey says, the dead themselves participated. The, the best analog I can offer is probably the Day of the Dead ceremonies in Mexico, when you think about families gathering around the tombs of their ancestors. And I think it's a really important aspect of life that we have lost here in the States. You know, death is seen as something foreign or something scary. And to the ancients, it was anything but. And the line between the living and the dead was, was quite thin. And interestingly, wine was seen as a vehicle for uniting those worlds. And also, you talk a lot about dying before you die and becoming immortal before you die, or, or these are quotes that you bring up. What, what do those lines mean? Right, so that, that phrase, uh, it's in the very beginning of the book. And it's a phrase that you'll see inscribed on a plaque at St. Paul's Monastery on Athos in Greece, one of the holiest sites in Orthodox Christianity. Uh, in Greek, it's anpethanis, primpethanis, densapethanis, otanpethanis. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. This is what the, the mystics are always speaking about, even, even across the Abrahamic faiths, across Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's this concept of dying to yourself to be reborn with a, a larger, more expansive notion of the self. And it gets very wonky and mystical, but at its core is this death and rebirth experience. And, and that death, as Bill Richards at Hopkins says, it has to feel acutely and terrifyingly real. You have to believe that you are dying or what you thought was you. And this is what psilocybin seems to bring up in people. Uh, in these experiments, they talk about 
their visions under psilocybin as being a foreshadowing of their own death, which is really interesting. And, and the idea being that if you experience that death while you're still alive, then at your actual physical death, maybe it's not as scary. Maybe you've been there already, and maybe you've realized that there's an aspect of the self, whatever that means, that may survive, that may go on. And this seems to be what was happening at Eleusis, at the very roots of Western civilization. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Again, I love the book, and this has been really wonderful. I've enjoyed this so much. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you, you can find The Immortality Key everywhere books are sold, and I'm happy to speak about this anytime. Brian Morescu is the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Again, thank you so much, and be well, and maybe we can talk about this again in the future. I would love to. Thanks.
if you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again or would like to share it with somebody, you can find all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.